0: The following resource is from Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, Illinois. More information about Bethany can be found at bethanycentral.org. Well, 500 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther became very concerned about the spiritual direction of the church. He was particularly upset by the work of a Dominican friar by the name of Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was sent to Germany by the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences to common people in order to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. An indulgence is a grant by the Pope for the forgiveness of temporal punishment in purgatory. So if a person purchased an indulgence for another person, then that person would be given the equivalent of time served. So you can see why there would be people very interested in giving their money in order to acquire an indulgence. And Tetzel was particularly adept as a salesman of indulgences. He would enter a village in this grand wagon, banners would be unfurled, trumpets would blast announcing his arrival. An armed guard would surround him. It's all very regal, all very serious looking. He could be heard crying out, Friends of this town, you've heard how your loved ones suffer in purgatory. You have heard their cries. The flames have reached up and licked your very own boots. How shamefully you go about your business. You spend your money on every little trifle, and oh, how your loved ones suffer. Enough! Step forward! Leo X, the Pontifex Maximus, vicar of Christ on earth, has been gracious and merciful to you and has affixed his seal to this indulgence. Now come and do your duty, and now you have a very special deal reserved for you. For a little extra gilder, you can free yourself from purgatory. Yes, God be praised. Give to the church your might. And the gracious Holy Father in Rome will see to it that you and all your dead relatives will be in paradise itself, not enduring for a moment the purging flames of purgatory. And then he would add a little rhyme As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, this deeply disturbed this monk, Martin Luther. He saw impoverished people using money to buy indulgences, considered worthless indulgences, money that they needed for their food. And he would ask the question, why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? Luther was a fiery guy. And when he saw something wrong, he, he couldn't let it go. Luther furthermore insisted that God alone had the power to forgive sins. The church was in error for teaching that indulgences would bring forgiveness of any sin. And so on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a copy of his complaint on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, please understand that this was not as dramatic as it sounds. It was frequent that scholars would nail up theses and notices upon the church door. And certainly, Martin Luther did not intend to confront the church strongly. He thought that his objections would be met with hearty agreement once they were considered and that the church would reform herself. But she did not. She dug in and she resisted. The church would excommunicate Luther a little more than two years later. An arrest warrant would be issued. This arrest warrant made it illegal for anyone to give Martin Luther food or shelter. Indeed, people were now free to kill Martin Luther without any legal consequence whatsoever. As time went forward, Luther's objections became more doctrinally focused as the church resisted reforms. He came convinced that the gospel had been lost, and that what was needed was a renewal of the gospel. And thus, it was through the Reformation that God brought the light of the gospel back into his church. Today, we speak of five solas, five solas that the Reformation celebrated. These five doctrines were highlighted not only by Luther, but many, many, many other reformers as well. Now, the word sola simply means alone or only. And in brief, here are the five solas of the Reformation. First, sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our sole authority for faith and practice. So church teaching, church tradition, church authority does not come alongside as an equal authority to the Bible, but every other authority comes underneath the Scripture and is submissive to it. And then there's sola fide, that's faith alone. We are saved from the punishment of our, that our sins deserve by faith alone in Christ, apart from any good works on our part. And then there's sola gratia. God saves from his, us from his wrath by his grace alone, and by not not by any effort of our own doing. Salvation is entirely a free gift of God. God himself takes the initiative to save us. We don't take the initiative to save ourselves. The grace of God sends Jesus to die upon the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit brings faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. Then fourth, sola Christus, Jesus alone is our Savior, Lord, and King. It is his sinless life and his atoning death that are completely sufficient to reconcile us to God. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us through faith in Jesus, and we can take no credit of our own. Sola Christus, and then finally, sola Deo Gloria. God alone deserves the glory in our salvation, in our lives. Our very chief end and purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So this morning, we're going to take up this one doctrine, grace alone, sola gratia, We open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here we discover that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This passage presents to us five reasons why our salvation must be by God's grace alone, with no part whatsoever uh, of our own. Before we dig into Ephesians 2, though, let's define God's grace. God's grace is God's undeserved unearned favor upon sinful man through the atoning death of Jesus. So if man had not sinned, God would not have shown himself gracious. Indeed, he could not. Apart from sin, grace does not exist. Grace, by definition, can be offered only in the context of a person meriting the opposite of favor. So in one sense, we're right to say that the fall of man into sin opened the door for this world to experience God's grace. God's grace is God's loving kindness freely bestowed upon a person who only deserved God's punishment. And that grace is bestowed by means of Jesus taking God's punishment upon his own person. It's very important that we not sentimentalize grace. You see, grace never trifles with sin. It never ignores it. So God's grace is not merely sort of this sentimental response from God, wherein God looks upon us and says, oh, I wish they hadn't sinned, and and so I'm just going to overlook their sin because indeed they have, and then I'm going to gather them to myself and give them a warm hug. No, that's not grace at all. God never discounts the infinite wickedness of our sin in order to give us favor. He is forever, eternally just, righteous in extending grace. So God does not simply wish away our sin from his presence and then shower us with his love. Grace is freely given by God's definite action in Jesus' crucifixion. So when we think of God's grace, we must think of a bloody cross. Carl Truman writes this, and I thought this was superb. Sin is violent, lethal, rebellion against God. I thought that's a great definition of sin. It's never something light. Like, oh, we sin a little bit, yeah, ho, ho, ho. Let's try not to do that next time. Sin is violent, lethal, rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. There is nothing cheap about God's grace. Now keep in mind that the church in Rome taught in Luther's day and in our day, too, that sinners are saved by grace. So it's not grace that really is the touchpoint of conflict. It is grace alone. The Reformers emphasize that it is grace apart from anything else. Today, the Roman Catholic Church does not teach that we are saved by works apart from the grace of God. Again, let us not misrepresent anyone. The conflict is whether we sinners cooperate with God in any way in order to participate in our own salvation. And as we will see, the answer is no, we do not. We do not contribute even the tiniest measure through our actions, through our attitudes, to our own salvation. God saves us from beginning to the end, and he does it without any of our help. Five reasons that our salvation must be by grace alone. First reason, salvation is by grace alone because our problem is infinitely beyond our remedies. Paul states the problem for us in Ephesians 2. You are dead in trespass and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires or the lusts of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Paul describes the original, natural, spiritual condition of every person, indeed of every believer. He's talking about believers. You were dead in trespasses and sins. God in grace gives us a new nature. So that's no longer true of us, but that's who we once were. We were not merely sickened by our sin. We were not merely weakened by our transgressions. We became utterly and completely hopeless. Notice the three truths that Paul teaches in these three verses about our sin. First, we were dead. We were dead in our trespass and sins. It's not that we were in danger of dying, but that indeed we were dead. It is not that we were gasping for our last breath spiritually. It is that there was no breath at all. So in what sense are people who are mentally, intellectually, emotionally, physically alive, in what sense are these people spiritually dead? Well, people who are physically dead are unable to interact with, relate to, and experience in some measure the physical world in which they live. This is how we know they're dead. They can't breathe physical air. Their brain can't respond to certain stimulus or touches. Their physical heart can't pump physical blood through their system, they cannot, and if a person cannot breathe, pump blood, or respond in any way neurologically to the physical world, then we conclude that they are physically dead. In the same way, someone who is spiritually dead is unable to interact with, relate to, and personally experience God. They do not see God's glory and His infinite value. They are not able to listen to God's true voice through His Word and through His Son, nor will they follow Him. They are not able to receive God's Holy Spirit and dwelling in them, whereby they cry out to God, Abba Father. They have no spiritual longing for true fellowship with God's people. They have no zeal to proclaim God's good news, the gospel of Jesus. They do not live as though the whole purpose of their life is for the praise of the glory of Jesus. And such a one is spiritually dead. Now it is vital that we agree with God about this truth. Let me uh, illustrate why. Imagine that you're out hiking and you're bitten by a poisonous snake. Call 911. The ambulance comes. Doctors come uh, as the ambulance takes you to the hospital and at the hospital in the emergency room, doctors get to work in a flurry of activity. They're checking your vitals, they're injecting antivenom if it hasn't already been given, there's a heart monitor to measure every beat, an IV drips given to boost body's ability to survive this assault. Lots of activities. Because you're alive. That's why there's a lot of activity all around you. Now imagine another scenario. You're walking down that same path you're bitten by the same snake but again you're way away from uh, civilization and you don't have your phone and you try to make it back but your body gets weaker and weaker with every step and you fall down and then you perish you die hours later hours later some other hiker comes along and sees your body and they look at you and you are white and ashen you're cold to the touch it's very clear to this person that you are dead. Calls 911. Again, an ambulance comes. But the activity is entirely different this time. They put a sheet over you, and they put you into the ambulance. No IV drips. No, no chest compressions. No antivenom given. No reading of the heart. They're, you are dead. There's nothing to do. They take you even to the hospital, perhaps. Perhaps. And again, there's no flurry of activity, only some forms to be filled out. One of those lines on that form reads, time of death. You see, there is no sense in trying any human measures to bring to life a body that is dead, dead. It's not just nearly dead, not just almost dead. It is dead, dead. And there's no sense in trying to bring that body back to life. So there's no activity So when you think of your soul, it's important that you not think of your soul as so weak that the spiritual heart is just barely fluttering, barely gasping, because if you think that way, you'll think there's some human activity that you can do to snap that to life, some IV that you can get in, some antidote, something that you can accomplish for yourself, As long as we think we are only nearly dead with sin, we will attempt to take action to bring life to our souls. And that, beloved, is what we must not do. That is what the Pharisees did. It is not what the publican did. The publican knew he was dead and he cried out to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Only when we acknowledge the truth of God's word, that we are dead in our sins, will we give up on all hope of human intervention. When a person believes that they are only nearly dead, prayers will be prayed, church meetings will be attended, commitments to God will be promised, sins will be confessed, the Bible will be read, rituals will be exercised, pastors will be visited, all for the purpose of keeping us from dying spiritually. But the Bible says none of that will avail anything apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins, which means that we cannot do anything to rescue ourselves, and no other human can either. Here's what Martin Luther would say. God has surely promised his grace to the humbled, that is to those who mourn over and despair of themselves, But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another God alone. These verses also teach us that not only we're dead, but we are enslaved by sin without any hope of freeing ourselves. Look at verse 2. We followed the course of this world. We were enslaved to the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We were enslaved to Satan, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. You see that the the world is emphasized. Satan, the devil, is emphasized, but also our own flesh is emphasized as, as enslaving us keeping us from being able to be free, to know God, and to enjoy Him. And we're enslaved in such a way that we are unable to break those chains of our sin and of our condemnation. Remember Jesus, He talked to the Jewish leaders, and He said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Jewish leaders became offended by that. They said, we're Abraham's offering. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How dare you suggest that we're not free already? We don't need anything. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. it's the sun that remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free. indeed. You'll really, really be free. But until the sun sets us free, we are enslaved. It might not feel like it, it didn't feel like it these religious leaders, but that is the truth. We're enslaved to this world and to Satan and to our own flesh. This is why Charles Wesley. In his great hymn would, would uh, describe his own conversion, he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a life-giving ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. That is the testimony of the believer. Do you remember Samson? Samson didn't know that he was enslaved after his hair was cut off. He felt free, as free as every other time, but he went to break the chains at the moment of wanting to break the chains that he realized, and it was too late when he came to realize his enslavement. Beloved, our soul left to ourselves in our natural state is like Samson without his hair. The chains of sin are bound too tight, they're too strong, We will never open our hearts to God's grace until we call out to God in helplessness of a chain-bound slave. And final truth is that we're condemned by our sin. Paul soberly says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's saying God's already declared us guilty. He's already set just condemnation in motion. He sentenced us to experience His wrath Friends, our condition is not like the criminal who is still in the midst of his trial. He still has a defense lawyer pleading his case, and he's still thinking, I might get off, I might get off, I might get off. No, we are like the thief on the cross who's carrying his cross up Mount Calvary. The trial has already been settled. The judgment has already been passed that's who we are spiritually so what a sober word and that is the reason why our salvation must be by grace alone because our condition is so miserable our problems are beyond human remedy secondly salvation is by grace alone because god alone acts to deliver us look at verse 4 and 5 but god But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Have two more precious words ever been written in the English language? But God, when all was hopeless, but God, when we were utterly helpless, but God, when no one could do anything to reverse our tragedy, but God. Notice, not that God helped us, but that God singular, alone, made us alive. It is not God coming alongside of us to give us a boost, to give us an energy drink. It's God, God alone, when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When Adam and Eve sinned, immediately they became aware of it. Immediately they died spiritually, immediately. And the, the the story tells us that they sowed fig leaves for themselves. They were just the two of them. They'd been naked from the very beginning. They, they didn't know anything but nakedness. But now all of a sudden they're filled with guilt and shame that we've got to cover up. We've got to cover up. And God went out and found them. Where, where are you? We're over here. Who told you you're naked? And they, they tell the story. And and God issues out these judgments. But then in, in verse 21 of Genesis 3, there's something that happens here that's so important for us to observe. It's that God acts alone in grace to bring them from death to life. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Think of this for a moment. Here's Adam. He's placed in this lush garden and he's told to name all the animals. And all these animals, I, I can imagine, are like pets to him. He loves everyone. He's named everyone. He's familiar with them. Never once has he seen any animal die. Death hadn't entered the world. And he has a problem that he thinks, well, I can solve my problem. Here's a fig leaf. But it didn't solve the problem. He needs something more, something raw, something bloody, something violent. And who made the clothes for Adam? Didn't say God gave Adam the animal, said, go kill it and skin it and make yourself some loincloths. God made these clothes for Adam. God slew this animal. Now, it doesn't tell us whether Adam and Eve saw the bloody mess. I think they did. It's my imagination. And I imagine they gasped. Think of the blood. as they're clothed for the first time. God's solution, it's raw, it's violent, it's bloody, but it's grace. God did it. And if God's gonna do that, if we're ever gonna be saved, it's because God will act alone to deliver us. Third, third, Salvation is by grace alone because it requires a miracle that only God can perform. And I emphasize those little words, he made us alive together with Christ. God did what no one else could do. He performed a miracle in each of our hearts, so dramatic, so large, so powerful, so amazing. Jesus raising Lazarus' body from the grave is a small miracle in comparison to the large miracle of raising a dead soul to life forever and ever. I'll just think about that. Remember Lazarus had been dead for four days and um, he came to Mary and Martha, these were his friends, and he came to Bethany to console them concerning their brother. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive, Martha would say. Jesus would reply to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? so he says take away the stone but by now he stinks (laughs) don't you know what the condition of his body is it's impossible it's too late remove the stone father i thank you you've heard me i knew that you always hear me and i said an account of these people standing around here that they might believe that you sent me and after he prayed he cried out with a loud voice lazarus come forth can you imagine being there? The man who died came out. First his hands and feet were still bound. They said, hey, go, go get someone, help him. Help this guy out here. Unbind him and let him go. Let me ask you, what part did Lazarus play in his own resurrection? Because that's the part you and I play in our salvation. All the part Lazarus played was he heard the life-giving voice of Jesus. And after he was made alive, he heard the command, come forth, and he says, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to spend one more day in this stinky tomb. Why would I? Spend it in this stench and this darkness. If you're alive, it's because God independently, completely, utterly, apart from anything you've done, spoke, and you became alive. And then he said, follow me believe and you get out of your tomb it says why would i stay back here in this world of sin darkness and stench jesus is coming me calling me to experience life our spiritual lives cannot be explained by anything we have done we have been made alive solely by the work of god and christ jesus upon us we have no part in this miraculous work fourth reason Salvation is by grace alone because God desires all the glory. I love this, verse 6 and 7. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where we are spiritually already. That's where our life is. It's hid with Christ and God. Why did he do that? So in the coming ages, for all eternity, he might show what? so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want any part of us to boast in any way in our salvation. He says, I did this to display my glory in my grace and in my mercy. See, God's passionate for his own glory. He's a God of infinite worth and desires that everyone sees him as the great treasure of life and that we would rejoice in him as such. So God made salvation available in such a way that all our boasting would be excluded, that he alone would receive the praise and honor. That's the reason why it is by grace alone that we're saved so that God would receive all the glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. Long time ago, I went to junior high and uh, <clears throat> in junior high there were some other friends who were really good at basketball and I was on their team and we won some trophies and uh, uh, then we had our picture taken because we a- a- almost won state and, and that was something that little school had never done before and if I go back to that school which uh, I haven't for a long time but last time I went you know what I do I go look at that trophy case is that still there? Do they keep it dusted? And there's a little bit of pleasure that wells up in me. And I don't think it's wrong to have that. A little bit of pleasure. Say, we did that. That was a great accomplishment. Those were great days. That was something. God allowed us to experience that joy together. God has a trophy case too, and we are his trophies, representing his work of making dead souls live, of making dirty souls clean, of making enslaved souls free of making enemies friends, of making blind people see, and of making poor people immeasurably rich. He says, and I want you to be my trophy case. So for all eternity, all of my creation, the angels, the redeemed, the unredeemed, will walk by you and say, wow. Look at how gracious God is. Some parts of God's creation display his power. I think of mountains and oceans. Other parts of God's creation display his wisdom. I think of galaxies, of DNA in our bodies. Other parts of God's creation display his righteousness. I think of angels, both the elect and the evil ones. But what part of God's creation displays the glory of his grace? It's you and me. We are shiny trophies displaying the grace of God. But then we ask ourselves the question, because this is where our worship lies, this is what it means to present our bodies in His living sacrifice. Am I a dusty, tarnished trophy, or am I a shiny, reflecting one? God designs to use us as a trophy case of His grace for all of His creatures to see and to marvel in His saving love and power. So salvation is by grace alone because our problem is beyond our remedies, because God acts alone to deliver us, because it requires a miracle that only God can perform, because God desires all the glory, and finally, salvation is by grace alone because it is received by faith as a free gift. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so anyone may boast. You know, in this world, we're right to be skeptical when we're offered free gifts. There's a common phrase there is no such thing as a free lunch. Businesses make a lot of money giving out free gifts. Business might offer a free home inspection, a free vacation, free coffee, free tote bag, all with the idea that we're going to spend some money on some goods, something in exchange for the value that they offer. But God is not like that. When God offers a free gift, it is all grace. It's not cheap. It cost him his very own son. He says there, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. When we enter God's family, we enter in the most humble of way by grace alone. So we never look down on other fellow sinners. We never hold any other sinner with contempt. We know that's where we once were and that's where we would be had not God initiated and enacted and completed a work of salvation in our own soul. Friends, beware of pride. Our proud self-righteousness will keep us from God's salvation and will keep us from bringing glory to God. If you are one who chafes at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it is because you want to contribute in some way to that salvation, but you cannot. Grace is a free gift. And faith, it's simply an empty hand that opens itself and says, God, my hand is empty, and I need something that you have and that I don't, and I could never obtain it. I need need you to give me this free gift of eternal life. And so we cannot be saved or rescued from our sins by following the Ten Commandments, attending church, do our best every day, being a good neighbor, being kind to one another. We cannot do what God requires. Only God can do what he requires, and that's what grace is all about. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works lest anyone should boast. I want to close with a little illustration. For those of you who may be wondering, have I received this free gift? Imagine after the service, you came up to me, and you said some kind word, and I said, here's what I'm going to do for you. I want to give you a gift. And I take out a checkbook, and I write $10,000, put your name on it, and give you a check. You might laugh it off and think I'm joking, which, frankly, I would be. But imagine that I were serious, but you thought I was joking. You have a $10,000 gift in your hand, but what would you need to do in order to benefit from it? You'd have to believe that I'm actually giving it to you and that I'm actually offering it. You'd have to take that check and write your name on the back, go to a bank and deposit it. You don't have to work for it, but you have to believe in it. You have to believe that it's real. You have to believe that you need it and that I am generous and that I have resources to be able to give this gift to you. And so, there is no reason why anyone should be outside of God's salvation. No one can say, ah, it's too high, I can't reach up there to grab it. (laughs) It's a free gift. It's for the person on their faces before the Lord saying, God, I'm dead in my trespass and sins. I need To be rescued. God says, Here's this gift. It comes through my son. Receive it by faith and be saved. And then we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the grace that's available through Jesus. I thank you that it is by grace alone. Apart from the wisdom of your plan of grace alone, we would never have any hope. We would never have any certainty. We would never be able to obtain what we need. Thank you, Father, that it is not through uh, monetary gifts. It is not through rituals. It is not through labors. It is not even through our prayers or our obedience, but it is through your grace. And so, Father, help us to rejoice in this truth and that, that we would live lives that are trophies of your grace. In view of your great mercies, Lord, uh, we desire to present our bodies to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing in your sight. This is only our reasonable act of worship in light of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethany Baptist Church. Feel free to make copies of this message to give others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without permission. For more information, visit us online at bethanycentral.org. Bethany Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and preparing His people to worship Him now and forever.